Greatly loved people of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord, one thing every healthy relationship needs is trust. If you can't trust someone, it's impossible to have a good relationship with that person, a close one. In that sort of scenario, scenario, you'll always be thinking to yourself, does this person really mean what he or she is saying? Are they stretching the truth or even downright uh, lying? Can I trust this person to be true to his or her word? And when there's a lack of trust, you can never really be um, comfortable around that person and close. And you know what? The same is true in our relationship to God. A relationship with Almighty God requires trust. And so we need um, confirmation in our hearts that God will do what He says. And how can we do that? How can we trust that He will be true to His Word? Now, in a very real sense, the answer to that question is simple and easy. We know that God will be true to His Word because He is 100% faithful. God never lies. <clears throat> and that is a good answer. But God in His grace gives us more reason for assurance on this part. He takes pains in Scripture to show us various ways why we can trust Him to do what He says and to fulfill His promises. And one such place is from our text this morning in 2 Corinthians 1. As we hope to see in this sermon, we can trust God to fulfill His promises of salvation because all of His promises are yes in Jesus Christ. And that essentially is a, the theme for this morning's sermon. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. We're going to see how this gives us, first of all, certainty in our faith and how this makes us God's very own possession. So first of all, we're going to see how this gives us certainty in our faith. <clears throat> now, without a doubt, not one of us likes going through trouble in life, whether it be trouble with work, uh, trouble with family, financial struggles, health problems, or difficulties uh, with fellow believers. All these things will make you wish for brighter days to come. At the same time, Going through these dark valleys are used by God for good. And one way He often uses them is to shine the light of the gospel upon us that much more. And this was most certainly true for the trouble the Apostle Paul was experience, experiencing with the Corinthian church. Paul's relationship with that church was severely strained. <clears throat> there was much strife, especially in this time of the writing of 2 Corinthians. Because of this, Paul felt compelled for the sake of the gospel to defend his ministry to the Corinthians. And through it all, God used this troubled situation for good, and not just for the Corinthians' good, but also for our good. You see, as he defended his ministry to the Corinthian church, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to give further teaching about the good news of salvation in Christ. 
And the specific trouble that Paul endured, also as he explains in our text, and his response to it, helps us to understand the gospel and God's faithfulness that much more clearly. Let's dig into that now. One thing the Corinthian church faulted the Apostle Paul for was his change of plans. Paul had told that church he was going to visit them at a specific time in the future. Sometime afterward, though, Paul felt compelled to forego that visit and write a letter to the church instead. Now, we read something of Paul's plans both in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 1. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul describes his plans as follows. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Then we read from 2 Corinthians 1, and he describes his plans there as follows. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Now, working out the details of his plans and what actually happened is a bit difficult to piece together. Some scholars believe 1 Corinthians 16 describes the original plans, and 2 Corinthians 1, the change plans. Uh, Some scholars think it's the reverse, and there's other options as well. But those particular details are not all that important for our purposes here this morning. What is important for us is to see that these plans in these two chapters are clearly different. Paul first told the church he would do one thing, but it turned out differently. And how did the Corinthian church respond? Well, it's clear from this letter, they did not take it well. It cast doubt in their minds about the trustworthiness of Paul. They felt that at best, he was unreliable, and at worst, He was being devious. And so in their minds, when Paul told them his original plans to visit them, they thought, maybe he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Maybe he had his fingers crossed. Maybe he was using word tricks to seem like he was saying one thing, but actually meaning something else. Or maybe he was just trying to pacify them with the promise of a visit all the while knowing he wasn't going to uh, fulfill what he had said he would do. You know, we might have those sorts of suspicions at times in life. Imagine someone you know is late for an important event. You told them to be there on time, and they're late. So you phone them up, and, you, and they tell you, yeah, I'm coming. I'll be there in five minutes. And meanwhile, they only show up 25 or 35 minutes after the fact. They knew it would take longer they told you five minutes just to pacify you. Well, nobody likes that. Well, was that what Paul was doing when he told the church his original plans? Did he make 
his plans according to the flesh, that is, according to our selfish, sinful desires. Only doing what he promised if it suited him. Saying, yes, yes, I'll come to you. And meanwhile, in his heart, telling himself, no, no, I don't actually mean that. And the answer to all these questions is, by no means. Paul is assuring them, no, O Corinthians, I was not being devious at all, nor trying to trick you. I'm certainly not speaking out of both sides of my mouth. That's why Paul says what he does in verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. In other words, I've taken great care to act towards you as I do in all my work of ministry with complete sincerity. And that's why he goes on to say what he does in verse 13. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. That is to say, I'm never being sneaky in my language to you, trying to trick you with clever-sounding words. When I write to you, I say what I mean, and I mean what I say. And to drive all this home, in verse 18, Paul then appeals to the very character of God in the gospel. And it's in his transition to the gospel at this point where we really benefit today. See, he grounds his own sincerity in the complete sincerity and trustworthiness of God himself. Listen to what he says here. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. You know, it's really astounding and somewhat shocking what he writes here. He compares the trustworthiness of his words to the trustworthiness of God's own character and God's own words. Now, that almost sounds blasphemous in a way. But Paul didn't defend himself in this way to promote his own reputation. He did it to defend the very gospel he was preaching to them. For if the Corinthians could cast doubt on Paul's own character, the danger was that it would cast doubt on the good news of salvation which Paul and his companions brought to that church. And so Paul takes pains here to emphasize his own sincerity. And it's through this that he teaches us important things about the sincerity and reliability of God's own promises in the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, through Paul's own defense of his ministry, the Holy Spirit wants us sitting here today to understand this about the gospel, that God doesn't use doublespeak 
when He gives us His promises and His Word, saying yes, but meaning no. God doesn't proclaim His fingers to us, or His promises to us, with His fingers crossed. He's not giving us His promises in the gospel only to trick us or to say, well, I didn't really mean it. There's no insincerity in God. There's no unreliability. Nothing devious about God and His Word. And this is meant to give us certainty in our hearts and in our minds that in Christ, God will do what He says. And you can count on God's promises 100% without any doubt. In fact, you can stake your eternal well-being on those promises God has given in the Bible and not be afraid. You see, when God promises in His Word, if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You don't need to doubt it for one moment. It's completely trustworthy. And when God says in His Word, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You don't need to doubt that somehow it's, it's not going to work out. And when God's Word says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. You don't need to worry that it might only be some things that work together for good or that God is working all things together for my harm. And notice that this certainty is true for all of God's promises in Christ. Verse 20 makes this clear. All the promises of God find their yes in God's Son, in Christ. And this is one reason why we confess that our entire salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Well, this coming week, we remember Reformation Day, how God brought about the great Reformation to His church, and how the good news of our Lord Jesus was rediscovered. And through that Reformation, we regained important doctrinal a point such as justification by faith alone, how we are righteous before God only by faith in the Lord Jesus. We regained that precious concept of Scripture alone, how God's Word alone forms a basis for our, our faith and our life. And here in this text, another truth solidified in the Re- Reformation is brought into focus that of Christ alone, that our entire salvation is found in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what our text is assuring us of. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. And so we don't need Christ plus. Don't need the work of Christ plus, say, the merit of the saints if that were a thing. No, all God's promises are yes in Christ. Christ is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. Christ's work is perfect 
to bring us all the way into eternal life. And Christ's work brings, us, brings about full and lasting salvation. God has given it in Christ and in Christ alone. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. And this also has important implications for how Christian parents raise covenant children. We just witnessed a baptism this morning. It's a wonderful thing. And God has shown us through the sacrament that little Joseph belongs to God's covenant people. And the main covenant promise God makes in Scripture is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And all the other covenant promises are contained within that one promise of God. So what does that mean for Christian parents of covenant children? It means you continually need to point your children to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the fulfillment of those promises, also pictured in baptism, signed in baptism, the fulfillment of those promises are found in Christ and in Christ alone. So the goal also as parents is that we want all covenant children to proclaim that statement of faith in response to God's promises, that statement of amen. Amen to the promises of God in Christ. And we know and believe that all God's promises, including to be our God, is found in His Son and His saving work. So teach your children to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Encourage them to faith in Christ. Bring them to hear the preaching of Christ in the church. And if they struggle with doubts about their own salvation, assure them the certainty of God's salvation in our Lord. If they're tempted to leave the path of the faith, call them back with the wonderful promises of God. See, living in covenant with God is impossible without Christ. But in Him and through faith in Him, all of God's covenant promises are brought to their fulfillment. That brings us to our second point. So all of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. And this statement of Scripture is enough to give us certainty in our faith. However, even if that were not enough, God further confirms uh, this by what our text says next. As I just said, the main promise of God's covenant is, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a promise fulfilled in and through Christ. But this promise is so wonderfully experienced, especially through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. For what happens when someone does put their faith in Christ, when covenant children grow up and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the Holy Spirit is given to that person to live within them. Ephesians 1 verse 13 puts it like this, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And our text confirms the very same thing with four remarkable statements. 
It is God who establishes us with you in Christ. And he has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, there's so much packed into these four statements. Together, they confirm again the certainty of God's promise. They show us that God is not vacillating between maybe fulfilling his promises and maybe not. For these words here in our text, they show us that by faith in Christ, we are undoubtedly God's own possession. Let's go through each of these statements a moment. First of all, it's God who establishes us in Christ. He strengthens us in our faith in the Lord Jesus. And He unites us to Christ His Son. And He solidifies our union with our Lord. And he works in us to make us faithful believers so that we stand firmer in our faith to the end. It is God who has done this for us. He has brought us to faith. He is the one who preserves us in that faith to the very end. Secondly, God has also anointed us in Christ. Now, there's a play on words here in our text. The name Christ, of course, means anointed one. Literally, the text says, in Christ, God has Christed us, or maybe we could say christened us. Or in the anointed one, God has anointed us. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. That's another reason why all of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate prophet, priest, and king bringing to fulfillment the promises of God. But in him, we too are prophets, priests, and kings. And in the Old Testament, God chose who would be the prophets, priests, and kings. And he called them and brought them into his service. And he showed that by anointing them. Think only of King David. God chose him. God anointed him. Anointed him with oil. But then the Holy Spirit rushed upon David, and God made him king. That's what God has done for believers, too. It's not by our power or choice that God made us prophets, priests, and kings. God chose us for that in Christ. He appointed us. He anointed us. He gave us His Spirit. It sets us apart for His service. And this is a calling God calls every covenant child to, to as well. This is another way Christian parents are to raise covenant children as prophets, priests, and kings in the service of God. That means teaching them God's word, leading them in holiness and righteousness as priests and kings. It means encouraging them to offer themselves as living sacrifices to the Lord means teaching them the fight against sin and the devil, and also modeling this for them. So that's the second thing at the end of our text. The third thing uh, he has done for us, as described here, is he has put his seal on us. Well, the type of seal here is a mark of ownership. We have that sort of thing in our day 
Sometimes people have a personal seal that they use to mark books or important documents as their own. The seal is pressed down on the page of a book. It makes a permanent imprint on the paper. It tells everyone to whom the book belongs. And the owner of the book is saying, this book belongs to me. For another example, think of how a rancher might brand his cattle. He heats up a unique iron, mark, uh, mar- iron marking device until it's red hot. He presses it on the side of the animal, leaving a permanent mark. And that mark tells you that this cattle belongs to that rancher. He's made known to everyone. He owns this cattle, and he intends to keep it. This is what God has done by sealing us. He's put his mark of ownership on us. He shows he intends to keep us. How has he done that? He's done it by giving believers his Holy Spirit. It's a permanent mark showing that we belong to God forever. And a similar thing is communicated by the last thing in our text. It says he has put a seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, what is this guarantee? What's like a deposit you make on a large purchase? It gives confidence that you intend to carry through with the rest of the payments. Now, in the ancient world, this guarantee was used in trading to certify the future transaction of a larger quantity of goods. A small part of the goods was given up front. It served as a legal pledge that the rest of the goods would indeed come. And it served also as a guarantee of quality. The quality of the rest of the goods would match with the quality of the first part given. And that is what the Holy Spirit is for believers. He's a guarantee of eternal life. God has shown us by this that eternal life is coming for you who believe. It's His pledge to us that He will carry through with giving us all the other saving benefits. Beloved, what wonderful things God has given us in Christ. He gives us certainty for today. We can trust His promises completely. But He has also given us security for tomorrow. He's given us His Holy Spirit to show us that eternal life is indeed coming. Amen. Let us now rise and sing together our song of response. We're going to sing together in Christ alone. You can find that on page 73 of the supplement to the book of praise.